Welcome back to the TeamCast. I'm Coleman Ruiz. Today's conversation is with Dr. Preston Klein. Today we redefine mission-critical teams. We discuss swarms, X-teams, and critical versus routine communication and why in different teams structured differently, those communication styles matter to team cohesion, operating style, and the balance between agility and predictability. The team cast is produced by the Mission Critical Team Institute, where we ask, research, and try to answer the most common questions vexing the most elite mission critical teams in the world, from special operations soldiers to urban and wildland firefighters, from trauma medics to professional athletes, and from astronauts to tactical law enforcement. Enjoy today's conversation with Dr. Preston Klein. We did get some great feedback from the community. Thanks for reaching out to us. We got some great recommendations, such as no yelling. So we're not gonna we're gonna try not to yell at you. We're gonna slow down the pace a little bit. But thanks for everybody for um, tuning in. Today's topic is routine versus critical communications and why it matters to certain types of teams, which Preston will talk about here in a second. Teams called swarms, teams called X teams, and why that's relevant today and why it's frankly relevant every day. So as we get started, Preston, can we back up for a second for the audience and just go all the way down to the weeds and define a mission critical team for everybody? Thanks, Coleman, very much. Mission critical teams when I first started doing my doctoral research, one of the things that I wanted to be really clear about is, is what kind of team they are. There's a bunch of researchers out there, including Hall, that have done sort of taxonomies of teams. And there's over in the, in the academic literature, there's over 50 or 60 or 100 different kinds of teams, negotiation teams, trauma teams, special operations teams. And I wanted to be clear that the teams that I was looking at were very specific. They weren't for everybody. And a big reason for this is because at the time I was working at the Wharton School in the leadership program there. And the Wharton School and, and business schools and academia have a long history in decision sciences and studying decision theory. But when 90% of that, including Kahneman and, oh, many, many others, when they talk about decision-making, they're talking about decision-making in, an, in an, a temporally unconstrained environment, which is to say, we might make a decision tomorrow, next week, next month, next year. The teams that I was looking at, that wasn't the case. They were making decisions in half a second, in seconds. And so when we first started coming up with, and I first started looking at these definitions, I wanted to be sort of clear in my definition to characterize what was saying what was different. So it starts off that mission critical teams are defined as, as small group dynamics, four to 12 people. And the reason that matters is that small group theory states that, you know, if you're at a cocktail party and you're gathering with a group of people and it gets to say, you know, into that circle of nine or 10 people, it starts to split off. It's a natural human condition. And that's why teams in the military and law enforcement, they tend to stay in four to 12. That's a, a rough number. Underneath that is a triad or um, a couple or a singleton, and those aren't teams. Secondly, you need to know that a team is not a group. A team, is, by definition, is interdependent. You and I aren't on a team unless I need you to do your work so I can do my work, right? That's the difference between a team and a group. 
And so when I say mission critical teams, you know, part of it is that they're integrated groups of indigenously trained and educated. And so again, into the weeds, indigenously means that you don't go to college to go to the FDNY. You don't go to college to go to the Navy SEALs. You don't go to college even to be a trauma surgeon. You go to college or not, but you're going to that organization and the senior gray beards or blue hairs, as we say, the elders in that community are the ones that determine whether or not you're going to make it onto the team what we call the cadre, the instructor cadre of the, the communitas, as we would say, or the collection of individuals that have been through the experience that you're now going through. And they're the ones who can make it sacred, who can actually confirm that you're entering into their world, their communitas. And that's what I mean by indigenously trained and educated. Trained and educated, I mean by training is for certainty, education is for uncertainty. We train people for skills, we educate people for thinking. We train people for reactions. We educate people for response. So, to, so in our world, culminize uh, the world that we sort of look at, we train people how to use a gun, but we educate them on when, where, and why you'd use a gun. And those are actually different things. Your brain learns differently on how to use your hand or how to ride a bike than it does how to do calculus or how to predict the future. Not that we'd ever be good predicting the future. Then these teams are focused on resolving rapidly emergent, complex, adaptive problem sets. And it'll be another time where we talk about problem sets and the theory surrounding them. But just know this. The only reason all these mission-critical teams exist is because the conventional solutions in the hospitals and the military and law enforcement encountered a problem in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, which their conventional tools could no longer solve. And so they had to create these teams. They had to create SEALs and SWAT teams and trauma surgeons and incident command teams. They were necessary because the problem sets that were emerging in the world required that kind of agility that a conventional organization just can't do because they, they need more predictability than they need agility. And as we've talked about in the past, when you choose predictability, you trade agility. And when you, cho you choose agility, you trade predictability. And then these folks work in what we call immersive but constrained five minutes or 300 seconds or less temporal environments where the consequence of failure is death or catastrophic loss. So the death or catastrophic loss is sort of self-explanatory, but let me do the immersive and 300 seconds. Immersive is, for those of you who live in this world, and, and this is also true, by the way, of professional sports. It's true of giving birth. It's true of a variety of things. But the truth is, is that the easiest way to understand this is through the lens of a firefighter. If I'm standing in front of your house and it's a normal day, I can walk in and out of your house and my reality stays the same. If that house catches fire and I walk into that same house through that same threshold, I walk into a different reality a different space and time. Space moves differently, time moves differently. It's called an immersion event. And you enter into it and you have to exit out the other side. You can't stay there, you can't turn around, you can't press pause. It is what it is, a firefight, a heart surgery. You can't say, you know what, I'm feeling tired, I'm gonna take a nap and come back to this. Nope, you're immersed into it, like swimming to the bottom of a pool. You can't pause, you gotta keep going and come back because the air is above the surface. And the last thing is 300 seconds or less. Why 300 seconds? Roughly speaking, that's about how much oxygen you have stored in your brain right now. So you've got about 300 seconds of oxygen stored in your brain. So if I, you know, for whatever reason, not me, but for whatever reason, 
your, your throat got closed, right? So you couldn't breathe. We'd have to solve that problem in 300 seconds or less, or we'll start to see cellular death in the brain. A lot of things can be fixed in 300 seconds, and you, there's more time than you think in 300 seconds. Do yourself uh, a little favor and start playing around with that. Just do the simple tasks around your house and time them. How long does one minute really last? And then think about sort of a chaotic moment and think about how long does a minute last. And this, this actually matters, and it's a good habit to know. One of the universal things, which I'll close out on this, is that no matter how experienced a firefighter or a trauma surgeon or special operations personnel that I work with is, none of them can accurately tell time in an immersion event. Michelle Fitzsimmons, the well-known captain from the FDNY, who is a good friend of mine, she's actually developed a habit where she knows how long, roughly, she's figured out how long it takes for the water to reach the bottom in her boots. She knows how long it takes to stretch a hose from the hallway to the room. And literally, that's how she tells time, not by telling time, but there are certain markers in the event where because she's wearing oxygen and they only have 20 minutes of oxygen, she needs to have a rough indication of where her and her team are in terms of oxygen consumption. So she's worked out these little cues to tell her, okay, we're, a, we're midway through, we're halfway through, we're a third of the way through. And that lets her know how to do cadence. That's the definition as I use it of mission critical teams as we use it. Yeah, it's it's awesome. Thanks for doing that. The thing that gets me excited about any team that has this fluctuation between routine and critical, which obviously we're going to talk about today as the primary topic, routine and critical communication, is that we can take someone from the outside, let's say who was criticizing the definition, quote unquote, yep. Let's say, well, a firefighter is not always making a decision in 300 seconds or less. That's, That's, right. That's absolutely right. true. Yep. And neither is a, a hockey team or a soccer team or a football team. Neither is a trauma surgeon. Neither is a yep. soldier. But the type of team that is 4 to 12 in size, that works in a rapidly emergent, complex environment, that does have times in their job – where they have immersion events, those events where once you start, you can't reverse and you definitely don't want to stay there forever. Right. Football player with a football isn't running forever. Like they're going to reach the end zone eventually, right? All those conditions exist for more teams than I think we would intuitively believe, you know, have those situations. Now, obviously yeah. we work with a pretty narrow set, but people can adapt that idea to almost anything in their life. If you have moments where, you know, you're in an immersion event and you're making a decision in 300 seconds or less, just take into consideration some of the topics that are, that are relevant to, to that environment. If, if you think it's appropriate, Preston, right now, do you want to touch on community versus communitas or would you like to save that for later? If you think about the Navy SEALs, if you think about BUDS and Basic Underwater Demolition School, it's a very uh, storied, celebrated, and well-documented process that you've t- you instructed in front of. And there's a, there are dual processes going on in the selection of a candidate in BUDS. One is there is a Navy process. There are tests and scores and predictive analytics, and there's a bunch of things that are necessary so we don't hurt people, right? And, and we've learned over the years there are certain rules involved, and those rules need to be upheld and measured and tested in quantitative ways. We need to put numbers to paper. 
There are other things, though, Coleman, that are key to becoming a Navy SEAL that you're never going to measure. And I'll give you an example. Sense of humor is something that is reported by all the teams that we study around the world. Rate of learning. Those are the kinds of things you can't actually measure. You can't put a number to. I know there's going to be some people in the audience that say, well, Preston, we actually can measure cohesion. We can measure. And I'm like, not really. I mean, let's be honest. I, I think you're, you're doing your best. But at the end of the day, we can't tell the weather out seven days ahead. of. We can't measure human beings for sure. We're incredibly complex individuals, put us in a group, and the complexity goes off the charts. And so I would just say that, that we should recognize, whether you agree with the particulars or not, there's a number of things that are key to being a member of any tribe, a member of any community. There are certain things we cannot measure but are critical, and these are qualitative things. So the cadre, the, the Navy SEALs who are running BUDS, as you did, and I want to get your thoughts on this in a second. You have your own criteria, your own qualitative tacit, and remember tacit knowledge, we know how to ride a bike, but we can't explain how to ride a bike. You, after many years in the SEALs, know what a good SEAL was, is, but you may not be able to articulate it. But collectively, you share that belief system and that unstated tacit knowledge, that shared belief of what right looks like and what wrong looks like. This is the sort of tacit knowledge that is held by what anthropologist Victor Turner called the communitas. This is the elders of a tribe who know the truths of a tribe who are able to articulate it, document it, or quantitate it. Quantify, excuse me. This is as important as the quantitative information. And this is the key point. They're both important but they're valid for different reasons. They use different methodologies. They use different language. And some of it is really difficult to articulate, but it doesn't make it any less true. In the same way that I, I love my wife more than, the, than anything else in the world. Could I explain that to you? No, but it's true. And so I, I will sort of say that. I'm gonna, my habit now is just to introduce love at every one of our, our <laughs> team casts, Coleman. I love it. Thanks for doing the explanation, it's amazing when we have group courses or interactions, every time you present, we present on community versus communitas, there's some head nodding up and down. There's some kill face. There's some eyebrows that go vertical. Yep. There's some, and it's a, it's typically, it's a phenomenal conversation with whatever team that we're with, because yep. I think if any of us just slow down for one second, and realize how obviously incredibly, for lack of a better term, empowering and exciting it is on a team yep. when, you're, when you have this communitas. And paradoxically, when I was an instructor and started thinking about this more, it's the thing that scared me the most because what I thought was a good troop commander graduating from our advanced training school could be probably not completely different, but potentially meaningfully different in terms of communitas from the next person. Yeah. And if the structure of the organization, take an athletic team, for example, the communitas rides on the shoulders of the coach, the staff, the energy in the locker room, depending on what the leadership is like, the fluctuation of the communitas is, is potentially could be a really positive and negative thing. 
Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that we've been brought in from time to time, unfortunately, is when a team goes sideways. That will happen at the edge of things. These teams are at the edge of things and they're often, they have high autonomy. And sometimes the community, for whatever reason, there's a bad actor, there's been some bad experiences, there's been some festering infections um, socially, and they don't get addressed. And all of a sudden that communitas goes dark. And unfortunately, there's there's not a lot of easy fixes for that. That's a, that's a bad, bad day. And that's why it's so critically important that the sled dogs, the members of the communitas, hold each other accountable every day because the consequence of them going sideways, we need them to be highly adaptable, highly fluid, highly autonomous. And the cost of that is that they also have to have high integrity. And if they don't, oh gosh, it goes bad, bad. I want to make one more comment on this and then we're going to shift to the key topic because it's, it's relevant to, well, it's relevant to all this, but all the great leaders I've ever been around, they don't always start their opening conversation with the new team, but you would hear often from them that the only wrong answer is that's the way we've always done it before. Yeah. And everybody's heard that at some point in their lives from somebody like this is it. Why do we do it like this? Well, we do it like this because this is the way we've always done it. But if we had the opportunity to ask the follow on question, well, what's the way we've always done it? And then you ask the other 30 people on that team in separate rooms, like almost like a prisoner's dilemma thing. If yeah. you don't get the same answer from every single person individually, you know that you have a misalignment potentially yeah. in communitas, right? The way yeah. things used to be is naturally it's individual. And that great teams don't operate that way. They eventually take the time, the energy, the effort to put a shared language to the communitas portion of what we do. And yeah. as painful as that can be sometimes. As the, as the community knows, especially because of coronavirus and a bunch of our teammates who are frontline healthcare responders and doctors, we've just been over energized with concluding some ongoing research and collaborations. And, and it's why we started the podcast is so we could continue to export some of the things we're seeing across the entire MCTI community. And one of those topics is this idea of X teams, swarms, different types of teams that have to come together that want to come together and the way they communicate and their communication stovepipes in a way can be separated into broad categories, routine situations and critical situations that require different shifts in our communication styles, particularly with teams that are just coming together and have people that they don't even really know each other that well. So let's shift gears into that, Preston, and get your background, your experience and some reflections on, on this recent paper we put out? Sure. So about a year ago, a little over a year ago, um, with our, our friends and partners at Arena Labs, Brian um, Ferguson and, and Dr. Doug Johnson, we wanted to look at this question of a very specific question, which was um, in certain, certain hospitals, in certain surgical units, there's a number of actors that need to come together for surgery to be successful. You obviously have the surgeon but you also have a number of other roles in that room, the anesthesiologist, the scrub nurse, and the circulating nurse, among others. But we're going to focus on, on those roles. One of the problems that's happening right now nationwide, or before COVID, was um, the medical system in the country is under a great deal of strain um, and isn't really functioned 
it's really designed to do the things we're, we're currently asking it to do, and we're seeing a lot of friction points. And one of the problems is, or one of the challenges is, is that you need to go through certain roles um, in sequence in order for you to get to some of these key roles. So for example, in surgery, it is common for you to start as a circulating nurse, and I'll explain these in a minute, before you become a scrub nurse, that is the nurse that assists the surgeon. We say scrub nurse and circulating nurse, and you probably might envision the historical roles these nurses play that you've seen in movies. And what I want to be really clear about here is that these are highly trained, really sophisticated um, skills and talented individuals. These aren't people that show up that morning and learn this craft. It takes years to learn it well. And so one of the problems is, is that they need people to come in to be a circulating nurse for a little while before they become a scrub nurse. And what some hospitals are seeing is high attrition in, in circulating nurses, meaning they're coming in, they're staying for a little while and they're leaving and they no longer make it to graduate to the scrub nurse. Downstream, this has huge implications, negative implications. And so at the time, pre-COVID, we were trying to figure out what was causing this high attrition for circulating nurses. And there are a number of variables in play here, but we were focusing on one specific one. And the premise was pretty straightforward. The belief at the time was doctors are jerks. And this has been uh, reinforced by a number of people, including doctors and nurses, that there's some truth to this. And the belief was, is that doctors, for a variety of reasons, lack a certain amount of empathy. And in that lack of empathy, are rude and obnoxious and critical of nurses and drive them out. This was the assumption, right? And so I had been asked to walk into this uh, particular hospital and observe three surgeries in a row. It happened to be heart surgeries. And the heart surgery, uh, it lasts for three hours. And this is important. And I'm going to try to describe this to you over the radio in a way that you both understand the theory that underpins it, but also the actual lived experience of that event. So the first thing you need to know theoretically is that heart surgeons specifically are hybrid teams. And here's what I mean by that. They are typically intact teams, meaning that they're the same people that work together day in, day out. So they get to know each other, build trust and cohesion. So that's, you should know that they're intact teams. The second thing you know, the reason we call them hybrid teams is because if, for example, on average, uh, heart surgery lasts three hours, that roughly the first hour is a routine surgical event, which is to say we're kind of making the donuts. Everything is going to be done by a checklist. It's as, as a tool Gwandi talks about in his research. Um, and, and I recommend his research. He's, he's got great books. And the first hour is routine. You know, you, you're gonna you're gonna clean them up. You're gonna you're gonna get all the stuff sorted out. Everybody's gonna do the things, and the, and you're having this normal kind of a conversation. And then an hour in, you're gonna switch that person over onto the heart lung machine to keep them alive while you're messing around with their heart. That's my technical term, messing around, not using Coleman shenanigans. There's no shenanigans, just messing around. What will happen though is once you turn on that heart lung machine you have a statistical time limit before the likelihood of that person getting a blood clot in their brain because of the heart-lung machine goes very high, like scary high. So you're going to open up the chest after, you know, on that mark when you, when you cross them over, and you're going to turn on the heart-lung machine. And then basically you have, say, 45 minutes to an hour to solve whatever problems show up. So whether or not you didn't see something on the scans, whether or not a mistake is made, it all has to get solved at 45 minutes to an hour. And so what ends up happening is you move from this checklist-driven, conventionally-minded routine surgery into what is more akin to trauma surgery. 
this. Yes, there's checklists. Yes, all that stuff is still true, but there's also high agility, high innovation, high adaptability. And then once you put them back on the heart, get the heart restarted, you go into closing procedures and you're back up into routine. So the final hours routine. So imagine that you have a team, an intact team that is going from routine to critical, back to routine, stop, pause, take a break, go routine, critical, back up to routine, pause, drop, and then do it all over again three times during that day. You should know that in a hospital, you have typically personalities that will gravitate towards trauma because they like the critical environment. And you have people that will gravitate towards traditional surgery or wards because they like the routine. It's very actually hard to find people that can do both and do both well. And so they're an interesting team for a person like us to examine because they demonstrate skills and abilities that are often not seen in the same team. So in this particular case, I'm there because I'm sitting in the room and my job is to observe the behavior, the communication amongst the team to see where we can do a better job teaching doctors empathy. And that's the idea behind it. Where are some inroads that we can make with doctors to give them better sensibilities around empathy? And, you know, good on them because it was the doctors that actually asked for this. And they were the ones that recognized they could be doing a better job. At the time, that was the assumption. And there's some caveats here. I'm not making blanket statements, just this particular phenomenon. So um, I sit there. And, and in the first hour, or the first three hours, the first surgery, what I hear are things like, when people come into the room, and I'll describe the room in a second, you hear things like, I love you, and thank you, and you're awesome, and oh, we're excited to see you, and you're doing a great job. It was one of the most inclusive and supportive working environments that I'd seen in a long time. It wasn't the team room and special operations. I never there. heard those things. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so this was, this. I, I was sort of, my head was scratching like, I am not tracking, are they performing for me? What is happening right now? couple things, just let me paint the picture of the environment that we're looking at. In these kind of surgical events, you're looking at a room, and I'll try to describe it to you. It's the room, maybe the size of a classroom, maybe a little bit smaller than the classroom that you went to school in. The center of the room is empty, but on the ceiling, hanging from the ceiling is a series of monitors, all angled in a sort of 360 kind of a a situation that would basically sit above where they're going to roll the patient into. They roll the patient into the center of a room where there is a big um, circle that's painted on the ground, and we're going to call that the bubble, okay? The patient gets wheeled into the bubble, and then the sort of technical ecology, the ecosystem, the technical ecosystem gets built around them. First comes the the surgeon who says, hi, my name is so-and-so. You're here to get heart surgery. Do you want that, or are you here for an appendix? And that gives them um, an opportunity to go, no, 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 I I I just sprained my leg. I don't need open heart surgery. That doesn't happen, really. And so they say, yep, that's me. And they said, great. And then we're going to introduce you to the anesthesiologist. The anesthesiologist then rolls in all their equipment around the head, right, and proceeds to put the person under. And then the rest of the technical ecosystem gets literally rolled into and around the patient, and they build this sort of technical ecosystem or this bubble around the patient. So you have the room, and the room is managed by the circulating nurse. Nobody gets in or out of the room without the circulating nurse managing that. And then inside the bubble, you have the scrub nurse. And that nurse, male or female, is standing on a platform that gets wheeled over the patient. So they're a good head or shoulders above everybody else. 
And that way they can own the bubble. So the scrub nurse owns the bubble, the circulating nurse owns the room and they interact with each other. That's how I saw it. Probably surgeons might be more specific than I am, but I'm trying to tell a story here. And so I'm watching all this happen and it's, it's like, it's amazing actually, it's extraordinary. And then you gotta remember that, you know, even though I've been doing this for a long, long time, I'm still a human being, I'm 50 years old. And I'm in the corner trying to stay out of the way. And I've been in many team rooms around the world looking at elite teams. And I pride myself on staying out of the way, of shutting up, of not interrupting their work, right? I'm there to observe and not to intrude, not to be noticed. So in between the first patient and the second patient, some of the the medical personnel in the room and in the hospital heard I was in the building and wanted to ask me on a break about my research, what I was finding, why I was there, all that sort of stuff they had heard about. And I was like, yeah, sure, of course, I'm a guest in your house. So they're asking me these questions and I'm answering it because I'm old and there's all this ambient noise. I'm speaking loud like I am right now, right? Like Coleman and I get feedback on, I speak too loud. And in that moment, the anesthesiologist, anesthesiologist steps out from behind the patient who is the second patient who he's putting under to have open heart surgery. This person's probably terrified and says in the nicest, kindest way, hey, Preston, can you, and he, and he puts his hand out like to turn a dial, and he says, hey, Preston, can you dial your voice down just a little bit? I'm still putting the patient down. Now, if I was him, Coleman, I gotta be honest with you, I would've just thrown me out of the room. Like, I would've chewed me out and thrown me out of the room. Like, this is open heart surgery, chump. Like, this is not a time for you to be having cocktail hour talk. But here's the thing, Coleman, As I mentioned before, I have pride in my practice and I've been doing it for a long time. My inner monologue at that moment, right, is the toilet bowl spiral of death, of shame and embarrassment and recrimination. I am upset at myself. My wife should leave me. I should just be homeless. I have failed everyone. I failed him. I failed my hosts. I failed the patient who I don't even know. And then also there's the 12-year-old boy in me like, hey, who's that doctor? How are you talking to me like that? And then there's my grandmother's voice like, how dare you insult a doctor, right? And then I'm like, I'm sorry, you know, to my grandmother. All of this is happening in my head in 15 seconds, right? It's just a crushing weight of despair. And then, of course, the grown-up in me is like, whoa, press and press and press and press. Um, he's probably already forgotten about it, right? You have a thick skin. He's going to get over it. If he really wanted to throw you out of the room, he would have. No one's in the wrong here. Get it together and fix it. And I was like, okay, thick skin, right. And then I had this moment, this sort of epiphany, and I go, hold on. I'm here studying doctors because our belief is they're transmitting in a way that lacks empathy. But that doctor, that anesthesiologist just gave me feedback in the most empathetic way possible. And it was all about how I received the information, not how it was transmitted, how I received it. And I'm trained to receive information, feedback from some of the meanest people in the world, right? Like the harshest people in the world. I can take feedback regularly, like, thank you very much. Write that down and take a look at it without getting my feelings hurt. So what just happened? And how? what do I mean by thick skin? And so my brain gets to be like a hamster on a wheel when this happens. When I discover some phenomenon I can't explain for myself that I have no framework to explain. And so then I become this creepy observer and I start looking at the micro expressions of all of the nurses and the staff in the room for the next six hours. And here's what I find. When a surgeon is using a tool and they ask their nurse for a tool or another tool, 
And let's say, because it's very subtle, these stuff, it's, it's very precise, it's very subtle. And they say, hey, I need this tool or, hey, no, not that one, the other one. Just let's use that as an example, right? Not that one, the other one. Well, if you, can, if you have pride in your work and you think you're good at it, that can be really startling for you because you'd like to pride yourself like, I should have given him the right one to begin with. He shouldn't have to tell me the other one, right? And so how do we manage this feedback, which we think, you know, we're feeling emotionally, but it's not emotionally charged. It's not intended to be emotional. And yet we're receiving that. And so I started when I left there, I was obsessed by this concept and I started reaching out to some of the like most thick skinned, roughest, harshest people I know and go, how did you learn your thick skin? And they were like, yeah, I got beat up like a lot. And people just told me I got to get over it. Don't take it personally, all these things. And some of it, honestly, you know, people don't like to talk about the toxic masculinity stuff because people, it's like a trigger word for people these days, but there's some truth to it. There's some stuff in male and female culture, both that isn't helpful, right? And some of that is about how we learn to take feedback. And so we came up with this idea, which is what if we, what if we actually were intentional about it? What if we took some people before they were ever enter into this world and explain to them using a model very, very briefly, here's what routine communication sounds like, respectful, courteous, kind, right? We all agree on that. And, and in a 300 second environment where the consequence could be death, here's what critical, you know, if your child is hurt, you don't want people asking you a lot of details. You want people to be direct, monotone, factual, and fast, right? Let's get this freaking thing done. But if you walk into a room, and this is the aha moment, and you don't know me, and I see a threat you can't see, and I turn to you and I start speaking to you in a critical communication framework, I sound like a jerk. I sound mean. I sound insensitive. But the truth is, I'm trying to keep people alive. I don't see you. I see you as a role. I see you as a means to keep somebody alive. I don't see you as a human. And when we started saying that to people, to new staff, a lot of them were like, oh, oh, they're not mad at me. They're not even mad. They're not even talking to me. They're just talking to the person in my role and they need a thing from that person. And they didn't, it wasn't the right thing. They just need the other thing. That's it. That's all of it. And I'm like, yep. And so one last thing on this, because it's really interesting. It's something I learned at Wharton. My, and this is not in the paper. So at Wharton, we went through a period where I had 30 what are called venture fellows, which are second year MBA students who helped me lead expeditions around the world. And one of the questions that was asked of us was, how do we develop female leaders? And the first thing I was like, well, I don't know, I'm a guy. So I know I'm already going to suck at that. But I want to be better. I definitely want to be better. And I want for young women to be better having spent time with me. So what don't I know? What can't I see? And they, they did a skit for me, and it was like, it's never left me. And they called it the red pants skit. And here it is. They put a bunch of dudes, a bunch of guys on stage, and they had a guy walk in wearing red pants. And all the guys were like, nice red pants. And then they asked the audience, what did the guys mean? And the guy, and everybody was like, they were making fun of his red pants. Everybody was clear on that, 100%. So then they took all the guys on the stage, and they put all the women on the stage. And they had a woman walk in with red pants and they had all the women say, nice red pants. 
And we asked people what they meant. And all the guys were like, well, they were complimenting the pants. And what the women explained to us was they meant everything from those are really nice pants to you're a slut to I think you look fat. All of us guys were like, whoa, that's all in the nuance. And they're like, that's our lived experience every day. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, ladies said this. What? The ladies said this. The ladies were telling me this. And so that gender dynamic, which I'm sure I'm destroying somehow, and someone will correct me, but it was this huge awareness for me that there were colors of the rainbow I was not seeing in day-to-day communications that I just, as a guy, was not aware of. And so when you look at the very real gender dynamics in hospitals, for example, this is one of the things in critical and routine conversations that needs to get addressed and needs to get addressed by people smarter than I am. But what we can do is amplify that it's a thing and we need to get better at it. So thank you for that, first of all, Preston. Second of all, you and I are not qualified to make any comments on, obviously, gender dynamics or communication styles. But what we, it just made me think what we should do for the community is bring a uh, Michelle Fitzsimmons or somebody from our community, Holly Ridings, to, as a guest, just to continue this thread, you know, in terms of routine and critical communication. I just wanted to add one one note uh, as an amplification because if you really slow down and think about this concept in your own life, it's easy to pick out places where you saw somebody go from routine to critical and you sort of took it the wrong way, right? Or I know there's thousands of places that I went to critical either too fast or oh, yeah. intentionally and it wasn't set up properly, right? So I had this this memory hit me years ago when we were co-teaching a course at the graduate school there. And when we were on this topic, my first platoon commander at SEAL Team 3, he passed away from complications around a brain tumor that he got later when we were in the teams, but a fantastic guy. And I remember when I was brand new at the team, you know, contrary to people who are outside the military who may not realize, you know, contrary to popular belief, it isn't this super rigid chain of command particularly in a special operations platoon. And there's a lot of flattening of the team. People who are very junior get a significant amount of input, certainly compared to what you see just in a regular business. Very junior, you know, folks in a special operations team have a lot of say. And so we were going through this training cycle for a couple of weeks before going on deployment. And this platoon commander of ours he had a really good style, like always taking input, always taking input, always taking input and applying it where he could and taking everybody's, you know, uh, notes and suggestions and blah, blah, blah. And there was one training trip we were on. And I remember as it, it, it seemed at the time very uncharacteristic of him, but he kind of like cut everybody off, made a series of decisions. Off we went into this field training exercise that we call FTX. It, it didn't take two hours for a little bit of rumbling in the platoon to start, like what the heck is wrong with, you know, so-and-so what the heck is wrong with so-and-so. And he obviously picked up on it. He wasn't stupid later, three days later when this FTX is over. And this is one of my first, what I consider not the garbage you list, you learn in like leadership one-on-one courses, my first real tactical lesson of blending the art and science of, you know, of leadership just in general, he sat the whole platoon down and he said, look, Someday you're going to be a boss of something and you're going to have a thousand things pulling on you to include temporal constraints, right? Just pure time constraints. 
I've tried to do a great job of taking everybody's input when I have the time and as much as possible. But there are periods of time, and most and most of the time, it's going to be when we're compressed for time. I'm going to make a, a decision fast and quick, and I need you just to listen and do, right? And what he was saying, Preston, obviously, was he was seeing a thing or dealing with a thing or had some sort of context that the rest of us didn't have. And what I've since learned is the one thing missing in that that I think is a freaking superpower of great teams is the rest of us didn't know when he was making the transition from routine to critical. But in the future, we kind of did. You know, it wasn't something he called out using this language. But if you think about athletic team coach, doctor, platoon commander, you name it, like a pilot on the radio, right? We're flick-flacking between routine and critical. And sometimes the team, until they really know our personality, they just don't know when we're switching modes. You know, it's it's really important. And, you know, we're doing this survey with a paper, and I want to encourage everybody to, to go online to read it. It'll be up on our website soon, but you can find it on LinkedIn and other places. You know, take the survey, and we've, we've got almost 50 uh, responses now. When we get to 100, we'll do a summary. But one of the really fascinating things, Coleman, is what you just mentioned is how many people are like, well, how do they know when I move from routine to critical? They figure it out. Well, okay, but we're now, and the reason that we wrote this article and we reason this is so important right now is let's go real time for a second. We've got traditional intact teams in medicine right now, frontline medicine, that are being asked to go on what are called swarms or X teams, where they are deployed to work with a team they maybe not have met before to rapidly figure out something, to resolve something, to keep somebody alive. We actually don't have time anymore for the team that you may not be working again with again to figure it out. We have to do better than that. Those old sort of solutions where, oh yeah, you know, well, they'll just figure it out. No, unacceptable. We have to figure out a way that we need to put in place early on to help our teams know when we've made that transition. Yeah, for sure. And as importantly, when I think about just regular non-frontline healthcare workers dealing with what they're dealing with today, which I'm, which I'm sensitive to, again, which is just like a, a combat deployment for them. But typical day-to-day things, even outside of a crisis environment, a team can really, they don't have to make it this big, huge thing where you send up a red star cluster, you know, right. when you're going into critical, that's not what we're saying. But if teams know each other's style a little bit better based on the things that they typically deal with, you can just get more out of each other. And that's, that's a great thing for any team. Yeah. Our mutual friend, Harry Moffat, who's a bit of a legend in this world. One of the things uh, I was last year down in Australia with him. And one of the things that he did with his family and did with us, my wife and I, he said, Hey, look, if there's ever a situation where you hear me say, and he said this literally as we were just walking through the Melbourne, he said, if you ever hear me say with me, just with me, just get behind me and go where I go. And I thought it was just genius because I'm in a foreign city. I really don't know what's happening. I don't know what he sees that I don't see. Um, And it was this great thing. And we actually did it one time in a funny way, but it was great because I immediately knew what to do. And I immediately knew why he was switching sort of his communication style. And for me, that little expression was awesome. Preston, let's, um, for, again, for the community, one of the things we're going to do as we come to the end of each segment is 
we're going to always try to close out with what to do on Monday. It's important to us that the guests that we have on in the future, the topics that we discuss, that there isn't just some, oh, good luck, that we drive all the way back down to practical applications and some tactics. So for the listeners, Preston, with respect to routine and critical communications, or respect anything you want, uh, what's a recommendation or a tactic for what to do on Monday? So here's some things that we found really easy to do and really successful. Get your team together if you can. And we'll go for right now with intact teams, and then we'll talk about non-intact teams, swarms, and, and X teams. But let's start with intact teams. Get your team together. Have everybody write down that if they were going to go into their boss on Monday morning and have a meeting about you know their future employment, but they wanted the meeting to be congenial and to be relaxed and fun, what are your five principles? Have them write that down. And then share them together. And you'll find there's a lot of overlap. And everybody can nod and agree. Okay, we all agree that courtesy, respect, active listening, those are those are important things. Then do the same thing. Okay, we've got, we've got an emergency. We've got a crisis, 300 seconds or less. Write down your five things. And you're going to find clear, concise, direct. You're going to find overlap there too. And if you do those things, you can help everybody understand what the difference is, right? And then what you have to think about is, how are you going to communicate to each other when you're going to have these environments, when you're going to make these changes? So if you're in an environment that you can control, like surgery, there are literally things, simple things like have music playing, and when the music turns off, everybody switches to critical. It's in the ambient environment. That's the signal. Everybody put your game face on. We're getting into it. And then when the music comes back on, take off your game face. We can relax a little bit, right? Or if you don't have technology, right, radio beeping, visual display or something like that, think about expressions. The Marines have a great expression of eyes. I don't know if this is true in the Navy or as well, but this idea where if, you, if somebody yells out eyes, literally that means everybody should look at them. Your eyes should look at them and they'll tell you what to do. But it's a great thing because it's quick and to the point, eyes or ears, right? And some communities that might be too abrupt with, with me is lovely. Or whatever, some sort of cue, you can make it up for yourself. And it can be fun and it can be unique to your team. The other thing I just want to mention is there's been research done by, again, Atul Gwandi and others to show something as simple, simple as introducing yourself, wearing a name tag, shaking someone's hand or appropriate physical touch can go a long way to help cross some of these divides. And so they're subtle, but they're powerful because at the end of the day, to go back from what we, we talked about at the very beginning of this, we're talking about community and communitas. We're talking about rules and we're talking about tribe. You can have rules, but you have to remember we're still part of a tribe and the tribe has its own sort of way of doing things and you have to account for that. Awesome. Was there something on X teams and swarms you wanted to add? Yeah. So just really briefly, and I'll be more specific about that. So in a situation where, and the classic example in medicine is on a resuscitation, somebody has coded, their heart has stopped breathing, and basically a group of people will have their phones or their beepers go off and they'll swarm to the patient and they'll each have a role and they have to execute that role quite quickly. They don't have a lot of time. There's not a lot of time to sit around and being like, hi, my name's Preston, how are you? I'm a Gemini. That's not going to work out, right? But what you can do is you can have certain things done ahead of time where if you know the people that will get pulled into a code, if you know the people who might join your team at some moment, to reach out to them prior to the event and literally just introduce yourself. Say, hey, my name is Preston. Shake their hand, physical touch. Say your name, say their name, and you'd be surprised what can happen. 
and then let them know, hey, in these environments, here's the difference between routine and critical. In a resuscitation, we will always be seeking critical. If I see any behavior that I don't think is good, what I'll do is after the dust settles, I'll swing back around to you in a routine environment over coffee or tea or water, and then I'll gently sort of say, hey, look, for you to move towards your potential, here's some things to consider. And that's the way you give feedback around those things. But you can't do it in the moment. You can't receive feedback in the moment. It's not useful. Thanks for that, Preston. For the community, keep in mind, doctors, first responders, nurses, frontline healthcare workers, especially during this time, are literally on a deployment, a domestic deployment. So to the extent that you can be helpful to them, um, try to do so. Thanks for the time today. As usual, Preston, you can find us at missioncti.com. At our website, you can sign up for our newsletter, which puts you on the distribution list. You can, of course, share the team cast. You can rate us on iTunes. I have no idea what the rating does, but you can rate us there. Presumably, it helps. Uh, we have links in the show notes to routine versus critical communication papers and other research that we talk about on the podcast. And, of course, with suggestions for guests that you would like us to have on and any other input, please email us at info at missioncti.com. That's info at missioncti.com. Thanks for listening and talk to you next time.